Hello, and welcome to this podcast of Archimedes, the evidence-based section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. It's been a while since we've had one of these podcasts, so I'd like to remind you all what Archimedes is about. Archimedes is the clinical question-answering bit of the archives, where real clinicians come up with real patient problems and try to answer them in an evidence-based way. This means that they need to define the problem they're looking at in a PICO structure, use this to go and search for the medical evidence, take this evidence and appraise it, looking for the best available studies to answer the question that they've got, and then pull that all together with a clinically sensible conclusion. Usually, that means that it tells us to do something, or not do something, or test something, or not test something. But occasionally, we come back with answers that say, we don't know what to do, and that actually, it involves talking to the patient and selecting their outcomes that are best. The Archimedes section also expands wildly into lots of meandering thoughts through the Archives of Diseases of Childhood blog site, where you can add your comments, or you can take part in the conversation on Twitter or via Facebook. We don't do Tumblr or Pinterest yet, but if you're desperately excited, we might be able to get something going as long as you'll help us by giving a hand. Now, back to Archimedes. In the Archimedes this month, we have a really interesting clinical question and also a critical appraisal topic that investigates an aspect of evidence-based practice. You'll remember that evidence-based practice is a shorthand for getting clinical questions and putting them into practice using the best available evidence, combining clinical expertise, research and patient values. Now, if you've got someone who's older than, say, about five and uh, you're not Santa, uh, well, actually, even if you are, and, and, and this person has a gift-related event coming up, like a, a birthday or, or some sort of celebration, then in the UK you tend to ask the person what they might like for a present. If you haven't had this experience yet, then you might want to think about what was it like for you when you were younger and people asked you. Well, why? Why do we do this? I'd suggest there's three main reasons for it. The first is that it's culturally accepted. It's the sort of right thing to do, and to do differently would be a bit odd. The second reason is that it saves time of having to think of a present yourself. And the third is that you might actually get something that the small person wants. These could be described as a moral driver for the first one, a self-interested driver for the second one, or a patient-centred driver for the third one. Each of them is valid, it's just a different way to try to answer the question why you would want to do it. Now, when was the last time you saw a research paper that had asked the folk who were at the centre of the investigation what they wanted to get out of it? Or, if you put that into an evidence-based medicine framework, do you ever ask your patients or families what outcomes they would want you to populate your PICO, patient intervention comparison outcome, question with? If you assume the same sorts of benefits as in real life when you're asking a small person what they want for their birthday, then perhaps researchers might be able to save time and get something out of the research with whom the research is being undertaken. And clinicians might be able to return an evidence-based answer that actually matches the question that the families have. It's not straightforward to do this. Admitting ignorance of an issue and discussing that ignorance and how you might get around it is something that's difficult to do with families. But if we do do that, we really can advance the trio 
of applicable research, clinical expertise, and patient and family values that really make up evidence-based medicine. The question that we address this month um, was posed and brought to us um, in the setting of the neonatal unit. So we know that breastfeeding is good, but what about the case of a 23-year-old woman admitted to the postnatal ward after giving birth to a term infant of about three kilos, but during pregnancy she is known to have used methadone? There's no known use of other illicit drugs or even any other prescription medication. And the midwife who's taking care of the woman asks if it should be encouraged that she takes care of her baby by using breastfeeding. The authors, Drs Lefebvre and Allegart from Leuven in Belgium, had this situation and formulated an accurate clinical question that said, Can a mother who used methadone in pregnancy, the patient, breastfeed her newborn, the intervention, and will this help with the management of neonatal abstinence syndrome, the outcome? They went away and they looked at different electronic databases looking for breastfeeding and neonatal abstinence syndrome and came up with 65 different potential papers and it came down to five that were relevant. They only had the ability to read the papers in that setting that were written in English and so excluded those that were in other languages or those that didn't actually look at the topic of breastfeeding and neonatal abstinence syndrome. The five studies that they included were a wide range. There were prospective cohort studies, some retrospective cohort studies, and a couple of case control studies, ranging between 16 or so patients up to 100 or so. And these were combinations of babies that had been some breastfed and some formula fed, whose mothers had been using methadone during pregnancy, and in whom the babies were checked out for neonatal abstinence syndrome. The studies were pretty much consistent in showing that the breastfed infants had shorter length of stay on the neonatal unit, decreased appearance of neonatal abstinence syndrome recorded by a variety of scores or measured by the use of pharmacological treatment um, giving the baby uh, an opiate for neonatal abstinence syndrome. In fact, the only one that didn't was the smallest study looking at only 16 infants where it didn't show a difference between the two. Now, these are observational studies, as is noted by the authors. And what that shows is that the mums who did breastfeed had lower scores for NAS in their infants than the mums who didn't. It doesn't necessarily say that if all mums breastfeed, then the neonatal abstinence scores will be different and will be lower because it may not be a direct effect of breastfeeding that reduces the neonatal abstinence syndrome. It might be that those mums that were more into breastfeeding were more likely to have taken lower doses or have other approaches such as a better way of being able to comfort their babies without using pharmacological treatment or it may be that we see those babies as being more settled and so not lead pharmacological treatment so there are some potential confounding issues with these observational studies however there are also some pretty sensible reasons why this might well be effective the breastfed babies getting small amounts of opiate in the breast milk perhaps or the actual comforting nature of breastfeeding compared to bottle feeding settling the baby down even if this isn't an effect directly 
of the breastfeeding. It certainly seems that mothers breastfeeding neonates in this way is a reasonably safe thing to do and seems to shorten the length of stay. And so there's certainly a good reason to encourage mums to breastfeed their babies and certainly doesn't seem like any problems would be introduced by doing this. Now, next month, we'll hopefully have more clinical appraisals of real clinical questions that you have sent in. If you're interested in taking part, then please send us an email to info.adc at bmj.com or follow the instructions to authors off our website. Until next month, thank you for listening. <laughs>